So last week, of course, we talked about the death of Jesus, talked about how we got there, the whole story and events leading up to the death of Jesus and why it was important and what it means for us. We talked about how Jesus came to die for our sins. He lived the perfect, sinless, innocent life that no one in human history has ever lived, and therefore his death was a perfect requirement satisfying God's wrath that he had on sins. Whenever, we, whenever he was nailed to the cross, he nailed our sins to the cross, which is what we did last week with our sins on the cross. But this series is not called King Jesus because Jesus died. It's called King Jesus because he lives. The death of Jesus doesn't mean anything if Jesus died and stayed dead. The Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians, he actually says that it, if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, then our faith would mean nothing. We would be in church for no reason. We would read the Bible for no reason. Everything would be pointless if Jesus did not raise from the dead. That's how honest the Bible is about it. But it means everything. If Jesus died and he rose again, if Jesus actually died and if he actually rose again, then it means everything and it is worth living and basing your life on. So let's get back into the story. So after Jesus is arrested, everybody leaves him. Talk about how Judas, he sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. And then the other 10 disciples, they leave and desert Jesus. But as Jesus is actually being crucified, the Bible tells us that his mother Mary is there and a couple other women who followed him are there, but so is the Apostle John. So we know that all the disciples fled, but it, the Apostle John is the only one that comes back and sees him. And after Jesus dies, they wrap him up and they put him in the tomb and they roll a stone in front of it. But then the story skips ahead from Friday afternoon all the way to Sunday morning. And so we're left wondering, like, what happened Friday night? What, what were the disciples doing when they got back? What were they doing Saturday when they woke up? The Bible doesn't mention a lot about that, but we can assume this is probably one of the darkest days and moments of their life. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in or John today, John chapter 20. Uh, I know I get out of Mark for a little bit. Um, I'm going to throw you guys real off, and then we're going to go to Matthew in a couple weeks too. Uh, I know we're all over the place. John chapter 20, verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So notice right off the bat, it says, while it was still dark. Now, she probably actually came before the sun got up, and so it was actually probably still dark out there. But the Apostle John, he uses the words light and darkness for imagery in his Bible. So every time you see the word light or darkness in the book of John, he's meaning something more besides him. So he's saying, like, while it was still dark, while she still felt like there was no hope, while she felt like God was not hearing her or answering her prayers, while she was still in that Saturday mindset where, they, where her teacher and her mentor and her best friend was just executed and buried, and she was still expecting him to be there, this was her mindset going in. So she saw the stone removed from the tomb. Verse 2, it says, So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one that Jesus loved, and, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciples, they went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter to get to the tomb first. 
Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had just been on the head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then he also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. So here we notice that depression turns into confusion. And this is where God doesn't meet your expectations, yet he simultaneously exceeds their expectations. So Mary went from being depressed and grieving to confused on why the stone was rolled away. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says it a different way. It says when Mary got there, it says an angel was there, and it starts being like pretty, honestly, pretty smirky at her. And she's like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Like, don't you know, like, Jesus isn't here. Like, Jesus rose from the dead. This is what the angel saying to Mary. Um, he's like, remember whenever he told you that he was going to be betrayed and crucified on, and then rise on the third day? So the angel is, like, reminding Mary about everything that Jesus said. And then the angel tells them, like, go and tell the other disciples in Peter. Now the male disciples, they didn't believe what the women were saying. But Peter, so Peter and John, they decided they needed to go see for themselves. Like, you know what, Mary, we don't know what you're saying. Like, you're pretty hysterical right now. Let's go see for ourselves. And it's kind of funny, actually, because the apostle John is the one writing this. And it says, you know, like, I got there first. Like, no big deal. Peter was fast, but I was faster. But their depression, their depression as well turns into confusion where God does not meet their expectations, but he also exceeds them. So Peter and John go to the tomb, but John doesn't go in, even though he gets there first, which he tells us over, to, over and over again. He doesn't go in. He doesn't know what he's going to see. He was also the only disciple that actually saw Jesus get crucified. So he probably doesn't want to go in and see the body of Jesus again if Jesus is still in there. He knows what it looked like before, and he had no intention on seeing that again. But they go in. So he lets Peter go in first, and they go in, and they see the tomb is empty, and that the clothes that Jesus was actually wearing, they're folded up nicely in a different area, and that's because Jesus didn't need those anymore. But notice that the disciples, they are still confused. They don't leave their rejoicing. They don't leave their telling in the whole city about what just happened. They are still confused. And John says it's because they still did not understand that Jesus had to die and rise from the dead. So then it says they just go back to where they were staying. Back to that house where they were staying at with mixed emotions. They're probably thinking, like, did somebody take Jesus? Like, was it the Romans? Was it the Jews that take Jesus and hide him somewhere? Did he actually rise from the dead? I thought what he was just saying was just allegory. I thought he was just telling a story that represented something else. Did he actually rise from the dead? And if he did, then where is he? Why didn't he come see us? Has he abandoned us? We can imagine the emotions that the disciples are probably feeling in this moment. When it seems like all hope is lost, this is for your life. When it seems like all hope is lost and God isn't there and you're in a depression, Remember that Sunday is coming. That it's not always going to be dark. When you feel like God is not answering your prayer, that's not always going to be the case because there is a Sunday coming. But whenever Sunday comes and you're still confused on what God is doing in your life, wait and trust God. Because God's plan is always better than anything that we can do for ourselves. The story continues. It says, Peter and John, they go back to where they were staying. But in verse 8, it says, Mary, she stood out the, outside the tomb crying. 
And as she was crying, she stopped or she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one on the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because if they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I don't know where they put him. Having said this, she turned around. She saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then she says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then it says, Mary Magdalene, she went and she announced to all the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that he had said to her. So the first person that Jesus shows his resurrected body to is Mary. So the very first pastor or evangelist or missionary that goes out and tells people that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead is is Mary. It's a woman. But notice in verse 14, it says that she looks and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize Jesus. She assumes he's a gardener, and then she begins to treat him as as such. She's like, like, did you take the body? Like, if you have the body, just tell me, and I'll take him from you, right? That's kind of what she's saying. But Jesus is always present in our lives. He's always working. He's always moving. He's always working for our good. But how often do we not notice that it's actually Jesus working in our life? Like, why would God allow this to happen? Like, why isn't God listening to me? Where is God in this situation? Jesus is always there. But how often do we not notice? Jesus said her name. He said Mary. We don't know the exact tone that Jesus used, but Mary knew that that was Jesus saying it because he knew that that was the voice of God. That's the voice of God that that created the world. That's the voice that formed Mary in her mother's womb. And that is the voice that called her out of darkness to follow him a few years earlier. She knew Jesus' voice. When Jesus calls you, when Jesus calls your name, will you listen? Will you recognize Jesus' voice? When Jesus is working in your life and you're not sure if he's there or not, if he's even listening, if he says your voice, will you listen? And will you recognize Jesus' voice? That kind of recognition, it only comes from spending time with Jesus in in silence, in solitude, in prayer, in worship, seeking God, reading the Bible. That's how we hear Jesus' voice, and that's how we are going to recognize him whenever he is working in places we don't know. And then Jesus tells her to go tell everyone about the reason Jesus, so she does. And then the story picks up later that day. It continues, the 11 disciples, they're still very confused. Because they just went to the tomb where they buried Jesus, and he wasn't there. And they're like, okay, we're just going to go back. And then Mary comes back later. It's like, I just saw Jesus. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, what do, what do you mean? Like, why would, and first of all, why would he even show himself to you first? Like, why not me? I'm Peter, you know? Like, that's probably what they're thinking. They didn't know where Jesus was, and they didn't truly know if he was dead or alive. And they feel lost. And they, and they feel scared, and they're afraid. Verse 19, it says, whenever it was evening on that first day, the disciples, they gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, 
peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples, they rejoiced whenever they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So imagine the story playing out. The disciples are scared. It says that they are hiding behind locked doors because they are scared of the Jews. The same Jews that just arrested and killed Jesus, they are afraid that if they get, word gets out that Jesus' followers are still there, then, then they are also going to be arrested and killed in the exact same way Jesus was. They are scared. They are terrified. And that's an important detail to remember in the rest of this series as we continue, that they started out so scared that they hid behind locked doors. But the locks did not stop Jesus from coming in and offering peace. And the same is true for your life. You think you can lock God out and, and lock him out of your life. And like, you know what, if God's not going to hear me, if he's not going to listen, then I'm going to lock him out. But the locks that we place on our heart, they're not strong enough to keep God from coming in and offering you peace. Jesus goes through the door at the locks and he stands to the disciples and he says, peace be with you. And then he proves that it's really him. He says, look at my hands. Like you can see where the nails were. You can see the side where they pierced me. And then in Matthew, Luke, and, and Mark, it says that he actually sits down and he eats a meal with them to prove that this is his real physical body, the exact same body it was that they, that they crucified, the exact same body that walked around with them. He proves that it's really him and it's not just a ghost or a spirit or anything like that. And then he breathes on them. And he says, and then he begins to share the mission he has for them. He says, everything I've been learning and teaching, I'm now sending you out. And he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And again, this is going to be a super important detail to remember in the next part of our story in this series. That he sends them out with a mission. But we're going to stop there tonight to answer the question. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for me and what does it mean for the world? Like if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if we are going to believe that, then what does that mean for me? Like we said in the beginning, Jesus, he died for the sins of the world. But that doesn't matter if Jesus stayed dead. It's his resurrection that matters. It's his, that, that makes his death important. There's so much importance actually on the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our life that we could do a year-long series on it just talking about the implications of what it means for our personal lives and our family and our community and, and globally and universally. The resurrection of Jesus applies to a lot of things. But tonight, the most important thing for us to get is that the resurrection of Jesus, it makes us alive in him. Whenever we think or we think of salvation as a one-time thing, as an event that happens in our life, we raise our hand, we say that prayer, and now it makes us good enough or okay enough that whenever we die, we get to go into heaven. That's a wrong view to look at salvation. That's a wrong view to look at being a Christian. It's not about a one-time event that makes you okay enough to get into heaven when you die. And if you've been around here long enough, then you know that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. That is a new birth. That is the moment when John says that you are being born again. When you come to that realization that you are a sinner and you can't do it on yourself and you need to rely on Jesus, it says that's the moment you are born again. And it's kind of like the same way in our physical bodies. Like when you are born the first time, you don't stay a baby for the rest of your life. 
Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, that's obvious. We don't ever think about that. But you grow and you mature and you start to become like and look like and become and think like your parents. Have you ever noticed that? Like, like someone like an old lady would be like, you look just like your parent. Like, you look just like your mom or just like your dad. And sometimes you catch yourself, like, acting like them or saying things. You guys are, like, look terrified right now. Like, I'm never going to be like my dad. Trust me, it, it's going to happen. Yeah, I, I don't think I am like my dad at all, but people, like, Brooklyn will look at me like, okay, Kurt. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I'm mad. <laughs> but when you're born, you don't stay a baby. You grow and you're mature and you start to look like and act like your parents more and more. And that's the end game of being a Christian, of living in the kingdom of God. It's being recreated in the image of Jesus. You're not meant to just be born again and stay born like as a baby. That's not the way that God wants us to, to grow. It's not to be saved, but it's to be wholeheartedly from the inside out to begin to look like, think like, and act like Jesus. And that starts with death. It's like Jesus had to die in order to be resurrected. So you also have to die before you can be reborn. When we believe in Jesus, the Bible describes that as dying to our old selves and dying to our old life, our old habits, our old desires, our will and our plan and saying yes to Jesus. And it's allowing him to recreate us from the inside out to love the things that he loves and to act the way that he acts. And that's in love and that's in compassion. That's forgiveness whenever the person doesn't need it. That's justice whenever you see something going on. That's peace. That's rest. It's slowness. It's a wholehearted trust in God. That's what it means to act like Jesus. And then it's to do the things that he did. We talked about this in a, whenever we went through Ephesians chapter 4. How many of you guys remember that fun series that we did? Ephesians chapter 4, we talked about um, dying to your old self, allowing the Holy Spirit to come inside and transform you uh, by the renewal of your mind to change the way you think and then put on the new self. I love the way that the book of Colossians says the same thing. Paul actually wrote the book of Colossians at the same time he wrote Ephesians. And so you're going to see a lot of similarities in, in between Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4, but it's a different take on it. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death the things that belong to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you used to, you once walked in these ways, and you were living in them. But now, put away all of the following. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Since you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, you are being renewed and the knowledge according to the image of your creator. If we can go ahead and get Alyssa to come up. 
Alright. I might go hit the I'll go hit the pad. Hold on, this is gonna be good. Maybe. There we go. But for real, it starts with death. Following Jesus is not about becoming a good person or a good Christian. I don't know. I thought it just stays on. All right. If you're taking notes, it's going to be important to write down. Following Jesus is not about being a good person or a good Christian. It's not even about following a a to-do list of do this and don't do that. That's not what being a Christian is all about. It's not about trying, but it is about dying. It's not about trying hard, but it's about dying to your old self. And it's saying no to your flesh and your earthly desires. It's saying no to your plan and your will that you had for your life. And it's living in the resurrection power of Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be renewed. It's dying to yourself in living in the resurrection power of Jesus. There are no shortcuts in living a truly meaningful and joyful and purposeful life in the kingdom of God besides dying to your old self. Now how do we do that? How do we die to ourselves, and how do we live in that resurrection power of Jesus the way the Bible says that we should? We die to ourselves and live in the resurrection of Jesus not by trying but by abiding. That's the way the Apostle John describes it in, in a, or chapter 15 of John. It says, abide in Jesus. That's another word for live. Make your home in Jesus. Those are fancy ways for saying, spend time with him. It all comes down to that simple phrase, spend time with Jesus. Set your mind on him. Set your mind on things above. Remember what verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 says of Colossians. It says, so you have been raised with Christ. When he rose from the dead and you believe in him, you are now risen and born again. Seek the things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. It's not about trying. It's about dying. It's about abiding in God by setting your mind on the things above. We become whatever we put in front of our eyes and whatever we put inside of our ears. We are very formative people. If we hang out with a certain group of people, it's not long before we start acting like them. Or maybe they start acting like us. We're very formative in that way. Whatever you put your mind in, whatever you read, whatever you watch, you are becoming whatever you put in front of your eyes and what you listen to. And if we are not constantly being formed into the image of Jesus by setting our mind on Jesus, then we're being deformed from his image. We're we're looking less and less like Jesus. It's not about trying, but it's about dying. And it's not about trying, but it's about abiding with Jesus. So tonight my challenge for you is spend time with Jesus. I know that sounds like a pretty cliche way to end a sermon, but that is, that's the practice I want you guys to put into practice tonight when we come to the altar. 
when you get home, when you wake up in the morning, find a time to spend time with Jesus. Set aside time every single day. And now as soon as you hear that, some of you guys, your anxiety just began to spike. You're like, I don't know if I could do that every day. Like, what if I forget? Or sometimes, like, you even try, and then you set a reminder on your phone, and then you forget, or you just say, remind me later, remind me later. And then you get to, like, three days later, and it says, hey, you pushed to do this three days ago. And you're like, man, it's not about trying. Most obviously, spending time with Jesus, it looks like reading a few chapters out of the Bible, read, doing a reading plan on the Bible app, or just spending a couple minutes in prayer when you wake up or before you go to bed. But it could also look like sitting in silence, listening to God's voice, getting away distractions, getting away things that are deforming you from the image of Jesus, and just sitting there saying, God, speak to me. God, I want to hear your voice. It could be looking at a sunset and thanking God for his beauty. It could be listening to worship music when you're driving or you're in the shower. But my practice, the thing I want you guys to practice tonight when you leave is spend time with Jesus every day. Make it at the same time. Make it a habit. Make it an appointment in your calendar. Make it a special moment. Make it a habit to abide with Jesus and allow him to transform you into his image. I'm gonna go ahead and ask you guys to stand. Alyssa and the worship team, they're going to lead us in a song for the altar. I'm just going to ask you guys to come up to the front. You can get on your knees. You can go to the sides. You can sit where you are. Use this time just to be with Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to hear your voice. Say, Jesus, I, I came in with distractions in my mind of what was going on on the outside. God, help me to hear your voice. Make me new. Make me to be just like you. That's our prayer I pray every single day. God, I want to be more like you. God, I want to think your thoughts. I want to be like you. I want, whenever words come out of my mouth, I want the first thing to come out of my mouth to be something that you would say. God, I purify my mind, purify my heart, my desires. Make me like you in every way. Let's pray that together. Jesus, I pray that you continue to make us new. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. God, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. But God, we thank you that it doesn't end there, but you are continually letting us become new people, a new creation. God, help us to die to ourselves every day. God, help us to say no to our flesh, that part of us that wants to continue to do the bad things, to speak bad about another person, to look at the image we're not supposed to look at. God, you know what that is. God, help us to die to that. Help us to put that to death and to be raised with you, setting our mind on you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Me and Brooklyn.